All right, great. Well, welcome back to Sunday School. We're continuing our study of the flood. Well, we're going to get started with a little bit of review over the last couple of lessons. As we've seen, there are so many reasons, or there are many reasons why the so-called wise of our age reject the historicity and global nature of the biblical flood. And many notable Christian teachers wanting to go along with these wise men, hoping to gain or to keep credibility in our world, they dismiss or they reinterpret Genesis's account of the flood. But if we truly wish to be wise, if we truly wish to be knowledgeable, then we will remember the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We will start with the scripture and we will submit everything that we see in the world to the scriptures. So when it comes to the flood, the scripture is actually quite plain. The flood really happened and it really was global. Some say the flood might have been a myth, that the writer of Genesis, Moses, was merely going along with what people believed at the time. He went along with their myth and he wrote this account of the flood. But why can we say confidently from the scriptures that this is not the case? And these are some of the things we've seen. Seeing that the writing genre, the style of the writer in Genesis and indeed of the flood account is historical narrative. We see that the flood account calls itself a history in Genesis 6-9 when it says these the records of the generations of Noah. The details of the timing of the flood and the construction of the ark, they show that the writer Moses sought to portray real history and not just history in quotation marks. Over in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles, they refer to Noah's flood in their own teaching. They use it as the basis of their own exhortations. It shows that they took the flood as an historical event. And ultimately, to make Noah a contextualizer, just go along with the myths or the fictions of the time, would make God a deceiver because he would be leading his people to believe something that's not true. The Bible does make clear that the flood is history. But have we misunderstood that history? Maybe Moses was really just talking about a local flood or a tranquil flood that didn't really affect the rock layers and the fossils of the earth. Now, last week, we dealt with that idea extensively. Was the flood global? And our answer was an emphatic yes. Now, consider some of the things we saw that support this notion last time. The language of the flood is extremely inclusive and universal. We see terms like all and every repeatedly in the text. The passage also repeatedly emphasizes that everything outside of the ark died. All the land and air creatures and people who are not in the ark, they died. The passage also explicitly identifies the height of the rising waters more than 20 feet above the highest mountains everywhere all over the earth, which would be impossible physically for a local flood. And we also saw that the flood water sources, these sub-ocean fountains and the floodgates of the sky, they preclude, they prevent, they, they forestall any notion of a local flood or a tranquil flood. This was a tumultuous time on earth and a time that reshaped the earth and definitely formed the geological and fossil record we see today. So the scriptures are clear about the global nature of the flood as well as the historical nature. And what we see in the world today actually reflects that. We see confirmation in the world. We see flood legends and far-flung cultures all around the world. 
with many of the same ideas of the Bible's account. We see billions of dead things laid down in rock layers all over the earth. And we see marine fossils in unexpected places, even in the middle of deserts and on the tops of the highest mountains, even Mount Everest. Now, if the Bible is so clear about the historical nature and the global nature of the flood, then, and if it makes sense of what we see in the world today, then why do so many disbelieve it? Why do they disbelieve the flood's history or the flood's global nature? I don't think I said this specifically last time, but I think you know that ultimately the cause is sin. Acknowledging the flood for many would be to acknowledge the holy God who sent it, which means that each person would have to confront his own sin problem and his and the separation that exists between him and God. So disbelieving the flood for many, for most, is just another manifestation of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 says. It's pretty clear that the that this is a historical record. And we do see the evidence of the flood even outside of the Bible, but that is being suppressed. But the rationalization of this suppression often takes the form of man clinging to another authority, asserting another authority like his own autonomous reasoning, his own observation according to his own worldview to explain away what would be confirmations of the flood. And we talked about a number of these anti-biblical assumptions last time, like naturalism, uniformitarianism, evolutionary theory. Man is able to suppress what he doesn't want to believe by looking to these excuses. And those who may not have such a malicious intent, maybe many Christians, they go along with that in naivety, in ignorance, in a, in a, in a way to gain credibility. And they also disbelieve the flood account, or at least reinterpret it. But as we've seen, as Christians, we have no business following the world in its ignorance or in its compromising the Bible to fit the world's own folly. Now, we have a sure word that we can believe and that we should defend, not be embarrassed about. Now, there is one realm of objections, though, to the Genesis flood account with which we have not yet dealt with, and that is the supposed inadequacy of the ark itself. If you're a skeptic, you might look at the Genesis account and say things like this. The ark, as a giant wooden box, could never have survived a year-long flood. Now, wooden ships are notoriously leaky, and a box would not fare well in stormy waves. Or maybe there's no way that Noah could have fit all the different animal species on the ark. That's millions of animals. The ark just wasn't big enough for that. Or even if Noah could have fit all the different animal species on the ark, what did he do about the dinosaurs? It would have been impossible for him to include, include these large beasts along with all the rest. Do you expect me then to believe this account, this supposedly historical account? If there's this clear problem, now imagine somebody, somebody said one of these things to you. What would be your response? I'd, I do like one response I read from Answers in Genesis, a basic Bible-affirming response, and it goes something like this. Well, obviously the ark was good enough because you and I are alive today. And obviously the ark was big enough for the animals because we still have animals today. 
all different kinds of animals. God doesn't lie, and his word is true. I might not be able to explain exactly how God did it, but the fact that he did it is clear, because it's recorded in the scriptures. And we should be able to say the same thing. Ultimately, people may have a lot of different questions about things that happen in the Bible, and we won't know all the specific answers to it. Sometimes it's just not known, explained, but we can rely on the Bible. Nevertheless, when it comes to this specific issue, we can say more. By paying attention to the Genesis text, as well as employing some scientific inferences that are consistent with the Bible, we can see and affirm the great wisdom of Noah's Ark. And we can show, actually, how the Ark was indeed seaworthy, and how indeed the land animals of the Ark, dinosaurs included, were comfortably represented on the Ark. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Can Noah's flood, or can Noah's Ark itself hold up under closer scrutiny? And here's our agenda for dealing with these, that question. We're going to re-examine the description of the Ark in Genesis 6. We'll then answer questions about the Ark's size and shape, and then answer questions about the animals on the Ark. Now let's pray before we continue. Our great God, we do thank you for your wisdom and your kindness and your grace in Noah's Ark. Lord, I pray that you help me to be able to explain this information well. I pray, God, that you would equip your people to be confident with your truth. Thank you, Lord, for preserving life and for even giving us life today in mercy. I pray that you would be merciful to others and use us as witnesses to them. In Jesus' name, amen. And before we really get going here, let me just ask, when people draw pictures or print illustrations of the Ark, how is the Ark usually depicted? That's right, usually a little boat with big animals, totally overcrowded, kind of looks like a floating bathtub, something like this. I see these kind of illustrations in children's books all the time. And it is a, a cute rendering, but probably very far from what the Ark actually looked like. In fact, there's a danger in only thinking about or picturing the Ark this way. What's the danger? I mean, it's not realistic, right? So maybe the whole story isn't real. Oh, sorry, I didn't see that. It's a hand in the back. Uh, but yeah, maybe it's all just a fairy tale. When we depict it like a fairy tale, maybe it really is a fairy tale. We can get a better sense of what the Ark actually looked like by revisiting the description of it in Genesis 6. So let's do that. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 6, verses 13 to 16. Genesis 6, verses 13 to 16. And this is where we find the only description of Noah's Ark in the Bible. So let's read it, and then we'll do some observations and interpretation. So I'll open there too. Follow along with me as I read. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. 
make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms. You shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, and its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Hmm, kind of a brief description. Let's see what we can notice. First of all, notice that this is God speaking to Noah about building the ark. Now, what is an ark? Actually, we don't know. We might want to say that an ark is a box. And there is another item in the Bible that's translated ark, which does have the meaning of box. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, our word ark in English comes via Latin, and it does mean box. And this other ark, Ark of the Covenant, is the Hebrew word aron, and it can be translated box, chest, or coffin. But the word for ark here, teva in Hebrew, it's a different word, and its meaning and its origin is uncertain. It may have something to do with a box. I mean, there's some interesting etymological arguments along those lines. But the only other time this word, this word, teva, is used in the Bible, interestingly, it's of the floating basket that Jochebed makes for Moses. Exodus 2.3, we see this same Hebrew word. This is what Exodus 2.3 says. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket, or a teva of papyrus reeds, and covered it with tar and pitch. And she put the child into it and set it among the reeds of the banks of the Nile. That's kind of interesting. The shape, size, and building material of these two teva are obviously different in the two instances, but in both cases, teva refers to some kind of floating, life-preserving structure. And therefore, some interpreters have offered a translation of teva that is more about purpose than shape. That is, a teva is a lifeboat or something along those lines. So it is a unique term. And that's the one used in our passage. But notice what this ark, this teva, was to be made of. Gopher wood. Now, what's gopher wood? Again, we don't know. The Hebrew word gopher, it appears in no other place in the Bible, or in Hebrew for that matter. Some say gopher wood was cypress wood or cedar wood. Others say that gopher refers to a process that's applied to wood like planing or covering the wood with pitch. It's also possible that gopher wood is simply a wood that doesn't exist anymore. It existed only before the flood or maybe existed after the flood and then died out. It's over harvested or something. So we cannot even say what this word means for sure. But this was the wood. This was the kind of wood that Noah was to use to build the ark. And of course, by the way, gopher wood has nothing to do with the animals called gophers. Notice also, Noah is told to build the ark with rooms. <clears throat> Interestingly, Hebrew word for room here is, is actually literally nest, some sort, of, some sort of safe and enclosed space. And it is that word is used for nest, actual nest, in other places in the Bible. Notice Noah is told to cover the inside and out of the outside of the ark with pitch. Now, for what is pitch used, this petroleum substance? For what is it used? Yeah, it's a sealer. It's for wood, you 
put it in there so that water can't get inside. It's a waterproofer, it's a sealer, and it would prevent water from getting inside the boat. Now notice the dimensions of the arc. We have 300 cubits long by 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits tall. Now we've encountered the cubit a few times now. What is the cubit again? About 18 inches. It represents the length of what to what? That's right, the elbow to the length of the fingertips. Now, how long is a cubit? It varied. It was often around 18 inches, but there were longer cubits, so it would go from maybe about 17 inches to 21 inches, depending on the culture. And some cultures even had two types of cubits. They had the short cubit and the long cubit. So which cubit is meant here? It's not said specifically, but without getting into a long argument, we're probably looking at a long cubit for this construction of about 20.4 inches. Of course, we can't say this for sure, but there's some good reason to think it's a longer cubit. And if we use this long cubit to make calculations, 20.4 inches, we can then convert these cubit measurements into feet. And that's what I'm gonna do for you here. Uh, the length, we just multiply 300 cubits by 20.4 inches per cubit, we get 6,120 inches, divide that by 12 inches per foot, and we get about 510 feet. So 510 feet long. And we do the same thing for the width and height. Width would be about 80 feet, and the height would be about 51 feet. Now from this, we can see that the arc is a very large vessel. I'm going to show you a picture in a little moment that compares the dimensions of the arc to a semi-trailer. According to the dimensions that we've calculated, you can actually fit 500 semi-trailers inside the volume of the arc. So today it would actually be comparable to some medium-sized cargo ships. It's a very large vessel. Notice also that God tells Noah to make a window and a door for the ark. Now, the term window may actually indicate something like a closable skylight or hatch. But notice where the window is supposed to go. A cubit from the top, or literally a cubit from above. But on which side of the arc is this window supposed to go? Or where in the middle of it, if it's on the ceiling, is it supposed to go? Text doesn't say. Or what about the door? Where is the door supposed to go? The text says in the side of the arc. But which side? Text doesn't say. How many cubits high is this door supposed to be placed? I mean, because there are a number of places one could put the door, how high is it supposed to be? We don't know. Doesn't say. How big is the door supposed to be? It doesn't say. Finally, God tells Noah to give the ark three decks. And this, we could ask a number of questions too. How tall was each deck supposed to be? Doesn't say in the text. How is one supposed to travel between the decks? Doesn't say in the text, though we can conceive of some ramps. Ramps would make sense between the two different, or between the, between the decks, considering we've got animals coming aboard, probably wouldn't use ladders so well. So that's pretty much what we can observe about the construction of the ark from the text. So let's ask some interpretation questions now.
first. Is the description of the ARC an exhaustive blueprint or an overview of specifications? What do you think? Yeah, it has to be an overview, right? Because there are many details that are simply not answered in these instructions. How big is the door supposed to be? Where am I supposed to put it? How do I put the wood together in such a way that the boat doesn't leak? How many rooms should I build? How big should each room be? What should I build so that I can move between the decks and the animals can move between the decks? How should I prepare the skylight? These questions and many others are simply not answered. So how did Noah know what to do for these unspecified parts of the ark? There's only one of two answers. Either God gave him other instructions that are not mentioned here, or what's the other possibility? Yeah, Rob. Right, so either God had to give him all the directions they're not recorded in the Bible, or God gave him some general directions and Noah filled in the rest from his own knowledge, from his own experimentation. He recognized he was building a boat and he filled in other features. So this means then that while everything in this chapter is true of the ark, could the ark have been something other than a box? It could have, because this is just an overview. Would Noah have been violating God's instructions as if he included ship-like components in his construction, like a front that came to a point? No, he wouldn't be violating that because this is not an exhaustive description. Now, again, it may be that God gave him more directions. We don't know that for sure, but it may be that Noah was given freedom and flexibility. It's quite possible then, understand, that Noah could have produced something other than a box-like ark. And I would say even likely. Now, God could have successfully preserved an ark that was in the shape of a box. But it's likely that when Noah received these instructions, he knew what he was building. He knew he was building a ship. And so he constructed it like a ship. And to Rob's uh, comment, it's not as if there were no ships in the world at this time. This is 1,700 years after creation, according to the Genesis 5 genealogy. And it's likely that man had discerned how to build ships, just as he discerned how to, how to um, raise animals, animal husbandry, how to make music, how to work iron. These are things that are actually recorded in Genesis as being discovered in those days. And so shipbuilding was not unknown. Nevertheless, the ark was a unique ship. It was a huge ship that was built with the unique challenges of the flood in mind. So if not a box, what did the ark look like? And how did its features help it manage the flood? Well, it probably looks something like, something like this. This is a design, a concept that is promoted by answers in Genesis. You can see the little trailer, the semi-trailer off in the bottom right to give you a scale comparison. The front is on the right with a raised fin and the back is on the left with this little piece sticking out at the bottom. Now, why this shape? Why do Answers in Genesis think this shape? Because again, this is not explicitly stated in the Bible. 
we're going to watch a little video presentation about this. Um, for those in the sound and video booth, this is the modeling the arc. This video is about six, six and a half minutes, and it's going to explain where this concept comes from. You'll hear in the video references to a couple different people. I'll just identify them before we watch the video. You'll first hear of John Whitcomb and Henry Morris. These are two important authors who wrote a landmark young earth creation book called the Genesis Flood. I think that was the 1960s or 70s. A lot of young earth creation arguments make references to that work. You also hear of a Tim in this video. That's Tim Lovett. He's a mechanical engineer and arc specialist for the Creation Museum. And they're all, I believe Tim actually says a number of things in the video. So let's watch the video now and then we'll talk about the arc and its concept. Whitcomb and Morris showed the world that the biblical ark was large enough to hold all the land-dwelling, air-breathing animals. They also established that the biblical dimensions of the ark gave it the needed proportions to be a truly seaworthy craft. While the initial box shape was certainly a step in the right direction, Dr. Whitcomb admits that the box design could be improved upon. Henry Morris did the engineering part of our book. And he simply took the dimensions given, of course, 300 cubits long, four, maybe 450 feet approximately. The width, uh, 50 cubits. The height, 30 cubits. And just assume from those three dimensions given that you have a rectangular shape. Now, the refinements of that, of course, uh, God didn't record in the text. And so that is left to our uh, uh, evaluation analysis. Uh, as we think through the issues today. We need to distinguish between holding on to items that the Bible clearly references, clearly talks about, you know, statements the Bible clearly makes, which we adhere to and we don't change, but being prepared to be flexible in, in regard to man's models that are built upon the Bible. The ark in the shape of a box also gained popularity in 1976 when a documentary, In Search of Noah's Ark, was released. This film also presented the shape of the ark as box-like. But that conclusion came from unsubstantiated eyewitness accounts and a few blurred photographs of a structure on Mount Ararat. It's important to understand that there's no solid evidence to support the claim that Noah's ark has been found and that it was indeed box-shaped. Uh, personally don't believe we've ever really found it. That doesn't bother me, friend, because Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You don't have to find a piece of the ark to believe that it was there. Somewhere buried deep in those mountains. And if and when someday God shows it to us, we'll say, Lord, we're amazed because the design of that gigantic thing that you put people into and air breathing animals into is exactly what was needed for the catastrophism through which it passed. Working with two naval architects on the other side of the world, Tim quickly discovered that the familiar box shape would not fare so well at sea. The flat sides and bottom would give the passengers a very rough and even dangerous ride. Tim built several six-foot models for some open water testing. 
One of his models was built to the specifications of a PhD naval architect. The model turned and aligned with the wind, in contrast to the box-like boat that rocked sideways on the waves. He took this discovery and applied it to his proposed model of the Ark. Was this a logical model based on information given in the book of Genesis? The first question is, what were the conditions like for Noah's Ark? Was it dead calm, or were there waves, wind, etc.? Well, there's a, there's a number of clues in the Bible. The first, the first clue is that Noah had to build something that looked like a ship. It wasn't just any old shape, it looks very ship-like. That 300 by 50 by 30, that's a big clue. That looks like a ship. So we're expecting the water to act pretty normal. It's like the ocean because we're building something that looks like a ship. There's other clues as well. For example, in Genesis 8.1, God sent a wind and wind creates waves. The Bible doesn't specify a wind-catching feature on the ark. But it does tell you a relatively long hull, and that is not exactly what you would expect. If you were just designing a vessel to float on the water, you wouldn't make it so long. It takes more work to build it long, takes more wood, and it's more of a danger as it crosses over waves that it could break. What makes the most sense is that the vessel was built for comfort as well as strength and capacity and sea keeping. So you have to balance all these factors together. In order to make it comfortable, you want that arc to be running through the waves not side onto the waves, which it would fall into naturally. There's a number of ways to do that. All you need is any sort of wind obstruction on one end. Could be a sail, could be a, a building, could be, could be a, a wooden fin. Um, but I wanted something which was low maintenance. I didn't want sails that they had to look after. So if we just build a wooden fin to catch the wind on one end, and at the other end, I wanted something that would catch in the water. And the usual way to do that is to have a thing called a skeg, which acts like a rudder at the back of a ship. Once Tim had completed his ark model, he noticed a remarkable resemblance to ancient ship designs. What I ended up with was something that looked familiar. It looked a little bit like the designs of uh, ancient ships, such as the Greek triremes and more ancient ships. What I noticed on the ancient designs is they had high stems. And a lot of the very ancient ones had high stems on one end and a, and a extended uh, mysterious appendage on the other. Were the features in these ships leftover technology from Noah's Ark itself? We can't say for sure, but it's possible that the storm weathering design that Tim developed for his Ark is seen on some of the earliest ships. Historians who've been studying ships have found these appendages at the back of ships. Now some people have thought that they were prototypes of the Greek ramming bow, but this is at the back, not the front. This stern appendage is, is called a mystery, uh, if you don't know what it's for. But if you, if you view it as part of a storm-keeping package in conjunction with a high stem at the other end, then it makes perfect sense. So maybe these ancient shipbuilders knew exactly what they were doing. Or maybe they were just copying features from Noah's Ark, which they'd seen their, their fathers and grandfathers do. All right, very good. All right, so from that video, we get a number of good pieces of information. Let me see if I can summarize. Why does Answers in Genesis, why do these 
young earth creationists, why do they think that this shape makes sense for the ark? Well, I should mention, by the way, we have a life-size model of the ark that has been produced at the Ark Encounter Museum in uh, Kentucky, which I know some of you have seen, visited. I'm sure there'd be a blessing if you did go and visit, but that you can actually see a representation of that in the flesh. You can actually look at it. Of course, there's a picture of it there. But why this design? Here's some arguments presented from the video. The arc, the arc proportions are the proportions of a ship, and the ships and ships are not boxes. As Tim Lovett actually testifies in a different video, the proportions of the arc are actually extremely similar to modern cargo ships, so much so that one of his colleagues, when he realized this about the arc, he believed in the Genesis flood account because it says that's too uncanny. Those are very realistic dimensions of a large cargo ship. So again, we're probably not talking about a simple box. Now the long hole also, it implies an arc designed for movement, not simply floating. Otherwise you wouldn't make a long hole. As I mentioned in the video, a long hole requires more wood, more labor, and it lessens the overall stability of the ship. And even Genesis 7:18, when it describes the ark floating on the surface of the water, the word for floating contains the idea of movement. So the ark was not designed to be stationary. A box would be stationary. But a ship would move. And similar features were found on ancient ships. Similar features as those inferred to be on the ark. This rear appendage that has mystified modern naval engineers. It would make sense on the ark. It would be for the movement through the water and the stability of the ship. The raised st stem, the fin, that would also be for ship safety and comfort on an ocean voyage. But the box shape would not handle wind or waves very well. Now, it makes much more sense to go through the waves than to get slapped by the waves sideways. And we can see, as we saw in the video, this design can handle the wind and the waves because of the pronounced stem, the fin. As the wind hits the fin, it pushes the arc in the same direction as the wind, so the arc goes in the same direction as the waves. It moves along the waves rather than slapped sideways by them. And the, the skeg, that fixed rudder in the back, it's also for aligning with the currents. It would, the arc would not be hit by strong currents because it would move along with the currents. The rudder would orient itself to how the water itself is moving. This skeg, this rear appendage, basically works like an underwater sail. So the water flows with the arc and not against it. Now, of course, in all of this, we can't say that this is the way that Noah built the ark. It's not recorded in the scripture specifically. We can't claim it authoritatively as court has inspired scripture. But Noah probably built something like this, something that went beyond the basic description of the Genesis 6 passage, something that was truly seaworthy and able to withstand the unique challenges of the great flood. This is not adding to the Bible. This is just pointing out there are not details that are not mentioned, or there are details that are not mentioned in the Genesis 6 description. So however Noah did it, if he did it exactly this way or some way similar, it was a vessel perfect for the flood. And by the way, as the objection of wooden boats always being leaky, that's really only true of wooden ships since about the Middle Ages. Ancient shipmakers had a different construction technique that was very labor intensive, but was an effective way of building tightly bound wooden ships wouldn't that would, that would keep out water but also remain light 
I'm not saying that the Ark was a light ship. I mean, it was rather large. But other ships that used this same design were quite light, and they could be brought onto land. This technique is called mortise and tenon planking. I won't go into the specifics of it, but you can find out more about it at AnswersInGenesis.org, and of course at the Ark Encounter. Now, this is really just one component of the apologetic question we're trying to deal with today. Maybe the Ark was seaworthy, a skeptic will concede. But how did Noah cram all the animal species on there, including those dinosaurs? That's what we want to look at next. And for that, let's just look a little bit further in our passage. If you're still open to Genesis 6, look at verses 17 to 22. We'll read a little bit further down. Genesis 6, 17 to 22. God continues in speaking to Noah. He says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, after their kind, and of the animals, after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Now, in rereading this passage, there's really one main idea I want us all to notice one key observation that's gonna help us with this apologetics question. Notice the phrase that repeats itself in verses 18 and 19. After their kind, or after its kind. And you may remember, we talked extensively about kinds in our lessons about creation. Kind is a very important concept for us to grasp. Noah only needed two animals of each kind. That is, he needed a male and a female. And he needed 14 animals of each kind of clean animal. Remember, two of the regular, 14 of the clean. By the way, why take so many clean animals? What do you think? Yeah, they're being sacrificed at the end of the flood. And if you took the only two or took one of the two and sacrificed it, that's it for that, that's it for that animal kind. So God instructed Noah to take Certain animals take more, not only for sacrifices, but maybe also for food after the flood. Because God does say, when the flood is over, the, I have given you the animals for food as well. And the clean animals were perhaps part of that food supply. God still wanted those animals to be able to multiply. So extras were needed. But anyways, for most animals, we're only taking two of every kind. Remember, kind is a very broad category. It's similar to the modern designation families, though not quite the same. Just to remind you, for example, if we take lions, tigers, bobcats, house cats, they're all examples of one kind, even though they're various species of that kind. They're all examples of the cat kind, or the cat family, as modern scientists would call it. Now then, when it comes to cats, how many of the cat kind did Noah need to take on the ark? Just two. Didn't have to grab a lion, a tiger, etc., which of course nullifies many of the children's pictures that we have of the of the animals in the ark. He just needed two. Male cat, female cat. And he's got the cat kind. 
or think about the various species of dog that we have today. Domesticated dogs, wolves, hyenas, dingoes, coyotes, African wild dogs. How many of these did Noah need to bring on the ark? Just two. He just needed a male and a female of the dog kind. Just as he needed a male and a female of the cat kind. And we can imagine the same thing for all the other animal kinds. Only two spiders, only two beetles, only two hawks, only two bats, only two bears, only two deer, only two snakes, only two frogs, only two turtles. If you think about this, instead of thinking in terms of species, this drastically cuts down on the amount of animals that Noah would need to care for on the ark. And this would have been true for the dinosaurs as well. We classify many different species of dinosaurs today, as many as 700 from the fossil record. But if you break them down into kinds, there are probably only about 50 dinosaur kinds. And you can see an example of different variations of one kind there on the screen. A ceratopsia, we think of the triceratops sometimes, but there are just a lot of variations on the one kind. And when it comes to dinosaurs, how could Noah have exercised some wisdom when it came to fitting in the bigger animals onto the ark? Yeah, take the younger versions. Get the younger, smaller versions. There's no reason to get a full-size brontosaurus on the ark when two younger versions will do. They can grow to full size after they leave the ark. Meanwhile, They'll eat less and they'll take up less space. Now, Noah probably didn't take newborn animals onto the ark since they would need motherly care, but he probably took younger travel-sized versions of the bigger animals, at least, on the ark just for logistical purposes. Besides, we should note most animals actually aren't that big, dinosaurs included. You may remember in our lesson on dinosaurs that the average size of a dinosaur was actually a full-grown dinosaur, mind you, was actually the size of a sheep. Though I did see in other places actually the size of a buffalo, so maybe there's, there's some debate. Is it the average size of sheep or buffalo? But we're not talking extremely, extremely large animals like we see in the movies all the time. Some dinosaurs actually weren't that big, even, at full, even when full-grown. And it's true of animals today. If you think of the average size of an animal today, it's probably less than a sheep. There are a lot of small animals out there. And there are only a few animals that are quite large. So putting these things together, or actually, let me, let me say this. We might be wondering then, all right, if we're working according to kinds, and if we're taking these smaller versions of some of the bigger animals, still, how many pairs of animals did Noah need on the ark? Now, this is an interesting question, and it's hard to answer, because we'd have to figure out just how many kinds there are. If we take the number of scientifically classified families of animals today, that number would probably be around five to 6,000. So if we're taking two of every kind at least, then we're talking about maybe 10,000 animals, which is a fair amount. But the problem is families, as we designate them in modern times, it doesn't quite align with a biblical kind. So in 2011, Answers in Genesis started a research project where they tried to classify all the animals according to biblical kinds. And that research effort is still ongoing, but a 2013 publication from this research estimated that the number of land and air animal kinds in the world is about 950. Of course, this includes um, 
animals that might have gone extinct, but the estimate is around 950 land and air animal kinds. So then, if we need two of each kind, and if we factor in the amount of clean animals and birds into this estimate, then how many animals are we talking about on the ark? About 2,000. And for such a large ship, that is very, very manageable. So when it comes to responding to the objection, how could Noah fit all those animal species on the ark? The answer is actually quite simple. He didn't have to. He was instructed only to bring pairs of different animal kinds, not one of every species. And moreover, he likely exercised wisdom as to the maturity of each kind of animal that he brought with him onto the ark, and he only took the younger versions. Now again, it might not have been exactly 2,000, but we're talking about a few thousand animals, not 10,000 or more, probably. Now, this may provoke another question, because someone might ask, are you saying that all the diversity we see in the animal kingdom today, all the different kinds of species, it arose in the few thousand years after Noah's flood, in the 4,000 years or so after the flood took place? All the diversity? Well, yes, absolutely. In fact, this is the best way to explain the speciation we see in the animals of the world today. And along these lines, we're gonna watch another short video clip from Answers in Genesis. This one is entitled Rapid Speciation. And to explain this, con this concept a little bit further. So let's queue up that second video now if we can. This one's only about three minutes and we'll say a little bit about it afterwards. and llamas, so different and living on different continents, yet able to breed together and produce young. Examples abound of species that can be bred together, zebras with horses, tigers with lions, potatoes with hot peppers and so on. This amazes biologists. Based on modern rates of change, New species should quickly lose their ability to interbreed with other species. So, modern species that interbreed must have formed recently and rapidly. It's amazing that camels and llamas, though separated by oceans and thousands of miles, came from the same parents in relatively recent times. So how could such major changes have arisen so rapidly? This is a mystery to biologists because they don't see such widespread rapid change today and they don't know of any natural process that can create the biological information necessary for such changes. The biblical account of creation may provide the answer to this mystery. Breeders have long known that domesticated plants and animals possess a huge reserve of information that can produce a stunning variety of shapes and functions. Most modern dogs, for example, came from just a handful of breeds in the 1600s. And these dogs have a wide range of features that suit them for a wide variety of environments, from sledding at the poles to hunting in the desert. And none of that variety was put there by humans. The information was already built into the dogs. Such variety of information can be found in cattle, pheasants, pigeons, apples, orchids, and many other domesticated plants and animals. 
If all the non-domesticated animals on the ark had this same wealth of information, then we could understand how a single pair of cats could produce all known cats. Today, crossbreeding between domestic cats and wild cats, between cougars and leopards, between lions and tigers indicate that all modern cat species are the same created kind. The original cat kind carried all the information necessary to build the variety of cats we see today. But where did this information come from in the first place? The Bible reveals that God created all the animal and plant kinds in the beginning. And we're now learning that God placed a huge amount of information within each created kind, allowing them to diversify into the myriad of plants and animals we see today. The information was there, all there, right from the start. This is not evolution from a lower form of life. It's creation by an all-knowing, all-powerful, infinitely wise creator who is worthy of our worship and praise. Very good. So basically, I won't summarize, or I won't refer to all the details of that video, but the circumstances that we find animals today requires an explanation, first of all, as to how they can be so different, but also how they can be so similar, that even when they've been separated to different continents, many animals can still breed together because they're part of the same kind. The only explanation for that would be really what the Bible says, that we had this flood and that all animals came from the kinds that were preserved on the ark, even the various species we see today. So then, so far from being helpless to the objections that skeptics raise about the viability of the ark, the Bible actually stands unscathed. There are very reasonable explanations for what the ark probably looked like, how it functioned, and how it easily housed all the animal kinds and even dinosaurs on board. Actually, as Answers in Genesis emphasizes, the ark could have accommodated all these animals and still have room. Why would there be extra room? For people, for people who would repent and get on the ark. As I said in the beginning, the Bible doesn't need our explanations to prove its viability. God has shown us that his word is true and as the Bible even says of itself, every word of it is tested. It cannot be broken. Nevertheless, with these specific objections about the ark, we can actually show people from the Bible that their objections are groundless. We always want to point people to the authority of scripture. Of course, there are many other questions that might arise when dealing with the ark, and we don't have time to deal with them today. Questions such as, how did eight people care for all these animals? 2,000 plus animals on the ark, how did they do that? How did the animals spread out after the flood? How did plants and aquatic animals survive the flood? If you're interested in pursuing these questions and their answers, you can find many great resources on the Answers in Genesis website, AnswersInGenesis.org. Of course, this information is also represented at the Ark Encounter Museum. And I know many of you can testify to that, but I think you'll be edified by looking into this information. So I commend that to you. But do always remember that even if we can't explain how God did something in the Bible, and sometimes we simply can't, we still know that God did it because it's recorded in his true word. And we can feel the preserving effects of what God did even today in our world. 
Now, what questions do you have based on what you've heard today? Yeah, Rob. What's the question about the swimming things? Okay, so did Noah bring the swarming things like bugs onto the ark? It's interesting in the Answers in Genesis Research Project that wants to talk about the different kinds, they actually don't factor in bugs into the equation, either because they figure they're so small that they're, they're not really a space consideration, or that it is possible that they might have been able to survive the flood. I don't know enough about bugs to know whether they whether they could be whether they could hibernate and survive in that way. My guess would be that Noah brought them onto the ark just like all the other animals. It's a good question though. Other questions? Yes, Steve. Hmm. Hmm. Good question, Steve. So in terms of modeling the ark and trying to figure out how feasible it was, did they factor in food? Now, in the specific research project from Answers in Genesis, I don't know if they did. That was specifically about animal kinds. But I know that there are articles from Answers in Genesis that do deal with that question. How did they, how did they actually care for the animals and even feed the animals? And I do believe they even have calculations like the, the, the tons of food that would be needed. I say tons in a more literal sense of measurement. How many tons? So yeah, that is something that Answers to Genesis has thought about, made estimates about. I don't remember specifically what they said about it, but that's something that would be available on their website. Other questions? Any other questions? Okay. Well, if you think of something else, always feel free to email me. That's it for this week. We have one more lesson on the flood, and then we're going to move to talk about the confusion at Babel before we hit our next review day. Next week, we're going to talk about the concept of an ice age. Was there really an ice age? And how does the concept of an ice age, if there was one, fit with the Bible's description of Noah's flood. I look forward to talking about that with you next time. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord God, you are all wise and all loving. The flood account reveals so much to us about you. You are not a God to be trifled with. The overwhelming nature of your judgment is clearly on display. Your anger against sin, your zealous justice, your love of goodness, but also your mercy. You preserved Noah, you preserved the animals, and as far as we can tell God, it wasn't a bare minimum preservation. Even in the way the ark was constructed, it was not just to bring animals and people through the flood, but to bring them through it in a way that was as comfortable as possible, and that sought to preserve life to the max we can imagine how dangerous the flood would be, even for those in the ark. 
but in your wisdom, you made sure to preserve them. We thank you for that, God, because we are the beneficiaries of that today. Thank you for preserving our lives, even in the days of the flood. And thank you for giving us life today. But God, just as the people of those days were beholden to you as the creator and life sustainer, so are we today. So God, I pray that we would not trifle with you, but as even was mentioned in one of the videos today, God, that we would approach you with reverence, approach you with the love that you deserve, approach you with the praise that you deserve. You have been so good to us. You've been good to all people of the world. I'm reminded of that, that scripture in Acts 14, how you testify to everyone by doing them good, even by giving them food and preserving their lives. We know this world is broken, God, and we see in the news just again and again the trouble and pain and evil of the world, and yet you have done good. You are continually doing good. And that kindness is to draw people to yourself. It is a testimony, God, that they should seek you. So I pray that each person today would, that each believer would seek you, God, as they grow in faith, and that those who don't know you would seek you, God. They'd humble themselves before the creator and the judge of the world. Pray, God, that you'd be so pleased to be merciful in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, everyone. I'll see you next time.